0: Listener Production. Burnout is a systemic infrastructure policy problem. And when we start to understand that it's a workplace problem and that it's not just an individual problem, that it's a company problem to solve, it made more awareness that there's accountability at all levels.
1: I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. We tend to think of burnout as a problem we can solve with some simple self-care, more yoga, better breathing techniques, maybe even meditation. But the evidence shows that applying these sort of Band-Aid solutions to a rapidly evolving workplace phenomenon is nowhere near enough. More and more, it's up to organisations to take the lead in developing a strategy to prevent and avoid burnout. My guest today is Jennifer Moss an award-winning journalist, author and international public speaker specialising in happiness and workplace wellbeing. Jennifer sits on the Global Happiness Council and was named a Canadian Innovator of the Year and she was the recipient of the Public Service Award from the Office of President Obama. She works with organisations to develop and measure their happiness strategies for improved performance and to help leaders and their teams find joy and grow to become more resilient and successful. In her powerful new book, The Burnout Epidemic, Jennifer explains why burnout is so widespread, and she provides some simple research-based solutions to empower employees to minimise stress and help organisations build happier workplaces. And Jennifer is based in Canada and joins me on Fast Track today. Jennifer, so lovely to have you here. I'm curious, what inspired you to write The Burnout Epidemic?
0: I actually, it's interesting, I've been working in workplace culture, well-being in that space for over a decade And worked originally with organizations that were at levels of optimization. We were taking them from good to great, you know, companies like Lululemon and and others. And what I came to realize over this process of working with organizations is that so many of them just couldn't even get to neutral. And so we're we're trying to create these well-being strategies that are actually band-aid solutions. They're tactics that are um, supporting people's well-being, yes, but they're not preventing burnout. And so we really needed to assess where upstream these issues were were beginning. And so as I started to dig in, I realized that burnout is is just a systemic infrastructure policy problem and that it's at the company level it's a we problem and not just an individual problem to solve with self-care and so that led me to do a lot more research in that and I'd been researching it pre-pandemic but then you have COVID-19 and the whole you know issue just exploded and so this last year we've really seen burnout at an all-time rise And, uh, and so it's it's been even more important for us to discuss the topic um, than ever before.
1: Okay, so I want to pick up on a couple of things in there as we explore burnout today. One of the things I'm curious about, I just want to define what burnout is.
0: Well, what's interesting is, you know, we've been arguing about the the actual definition for a long time. I mean, we have so many different variations on what burnout means. It started out, you know, obviously, you know, we have lots of different symbols of it. You know, is it the person that's sitting on the couch um, doing too many drugs and, you know, not going to school? We have the, that type of burnout. We have, you know, the soccer mom burnout, do the cult of busy. And, you know, we have all these this sort of different definitions. And I think that etymology of the word as it's sort of progressed has sort of been you know treated unfairly and it's made it so that it's not something that we can diagnose and treat well in 2019 the WHO the World Health Organization decided that it should be included in its international classification of diseases and that changed sort of the mindset for a lot of of people around the world and something about that definition which is that um, it's essentially burnout as an occupational phenomena and that it's uh, a series of uh, being stressed or chronic stress at work that is left unmanaged and when we start to understand that it's a workplace problem and that it's not just an individual problem that it's a company problem to solve it made more awareness that there's accountability at all levels and that WHO definition has really helped. It hasn't gone so far you know, as I think a lot of burnout researchers would like to say that this is a medical diagnosis. They might have included it in the international classification of diseases, but they were really quick to stop and tell everyone it wasn't actually a medical condition because they didn't want to go that far. Um, But I think we need to get to that place where there's pharmacological treatments for it and there's programs to support it and people can actually take time and leave because of burnout. Um, And that's still yet to be developed, I think, and and we need to see that in the future of work.
1: It's so interesting. I worked with a professor at Sydney University who used to talk about the well-being and performance intersection. And he'd say when you had low well-being and high performance, then you were able to sustain that for a short period of time, but you always needed to travel to a place of recovery to avoid burnout, which is what I want to come to because burnout traditionally has been seen as an A-type personality problem. Oh, she's gone too hard. He's gone too hard. And there they are. They've burnt out and they're reinventing themselves in another way. Is that your take on it too?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we've just left it up to to the individual to assess and then manage and then prevent and, and then be able to come back to work. And yet, you know, there is just chronic legacy of overwork when you look at the six root causes of burnout it's you know lack of fairness which is you know anywhere that there's a delta in pay amongst you know people in the workforce which we see that everywhere i mean it's it's overwork you see that in in this just these legacy of overwork in healthcare and places in financial industries where, you know, we're seeing some shifts there, but really it's basically like a junior associate at a, you know, at a major firm, accounting firm gets hazed in their first five years and they have to work these extraordinary hours to prove that they are worthy. I mean, that's not a, that's not a type A personality. That's a culture of overwork inside of the organizations. We see this in, you know, just people working more and, and not getting valued for their work, in lack of community where relationships are suffering or there's bullying at work. I mean, these, again, systemic issues they are not solvable by you know uh, a tactic like doing more yoga or breathing or getting a, an app these things don't solve that again great for optimization but they do not help with you know systemic wage gaps and maternal labor force being impacted this year from systemic issues ar- around women in the labor force i mean these are these are big problems and i think the more that we can Tackle that and label that as these big issues, the more that we can really get to the roots of preventing burnout.
1: Okay. And Jennifer, you said there were six causes of burnout. I think we talked about one. Can you take me through the other five? Yes.
0: Yeah, so, um, overwork, as I mentioned, uh, lack of fairness is another one, community, I mentioned those relationships. Um, uh, where we have a values mismatch or a roles mismatch, um, to sort of describe that one, we're looking at potentially, you know, young people who have been dramatically impacted this year—the younger workforce, Gen Zs and millennials—that, you know, potentially they would not be able to get a job because there's, um, you know, solid unemployment across the board for that group. And so they'll go back to school and continue their education or, you know, improve their education. And then they'll go back into a workforce that doesn't necessarily have the opportunity for their skill set. So they end up being chronically overqualified. Uh, we see this with a manager potentially in this mm. role where they are really great at being individual contributor, but because of the hierarchical way that we promote people, they end up being a manager and aren't very good at it. And so they're sort of set up to fail. And we see a lot of that set up to fail for for managers. We also see lack of reward for effort. We see that with, um, often with nurses and first responders and teachers, you know, where you're basically working for minimum wage because you're working so many overtime shifts. And so those are sort of the main root causes, again, very much um, consistent with sort of more societal, you know, issues and things that come externally into a workforce, and then we pair that with systems and policies that aren't really built to solve for them. Okay. It's really interesting when you think about what those root causes are. And uh, and a lot of burnout is a result of just those sort of unmanaged over time. They're like little pebbles, little incremental nudges every day that aren't fixed. And then over time, we hit a wall, and that's when we we actually burn out. Yeah,
1: I like to think of dog paddling with your nose above the waterline and then it's just the final wave. It doesn't have to be big. It's the final wave and it sends you under. And um, I think, you know, this topic is so relevant, Jennifer, for everybody. I'd like to talk about the impact COVID has had on burnout because prior to that, my observation was that we were in a busy culture, that people were wanting things to slow down because we were all too busy. But COVID's had a really different impact on us. There's a COVID fatigue and a COVID burnout. And you know a bit about this. Can you help enlighten me on your view?
0: Well, you know, any type of crises just sort of exacerbates current problems. And there's been issues for a long time where, uh, again, COVID has just lit a fire to a workforce and drought. I mean, there is already a lot of problems when you look at meeting fatigue, for example. I mean, people were really Tired from <laughs> from b- being in too many meetings. Um, when we worked at with Lululemon, they had something that they considered time theft, and they looked at having meetings that went over. You know, just as mm-hmm. against culture as stealing from the stores because when you're stealing expensive resources like someone's time, it's it's costly, and so they had a big you know, sort of culture around not stealing people's time. And I think we need to get more mindful about that. And that was a problem before. But here we are, you know, we've what I feel is that we've sort of behaved in this acute response to the pandemic and we continue to just behave in these acute ways, you know, where we thought of this as an emergency, which it was. But now here we are, and the the definition of an emergency is that it's, you know, sort of a surprise or it's unexpected and we have to respond to it in, in an unstructured kind of way, but we're no longer in an emergency. We're looking at potentially, you know, 18 months before we even start to get to the recovery and back to work and things being a little bit more normal, which will also not be normal. It'll be changed too. So, you know, we have to start looking at what is the sustainability of the things that we're doing now and being, you know know in front of a a video screen for eight hours a day is not healthy for us it's extremely sedentary we're not actually getting the true benefits of sharing you know our mirror neurons and connecting in a human way so there's all these things that we just keep doing that we haven't reassessed and and asked is this actually what is good for us in, in the future of work um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we basically sped up the future of work by 10 years and placed it into the now. So there's catching up to do, um, but we can't just kind of go back and think, well, this is business as usual. Nothing's changed because everything's changed. And now we, we have to make these adjustments to this new experience. And a lot of organizations aren't doing that. They're just sort of plowing forward and they're not thinking about the impact that is having on their employees.
1: You mentioned organisations not doing anything. What can they do to prevent employees burning out and the employee experience being one of energy and flourishing rather than burnout recovery, burnout recovery?
0: It's not as big of a lift as everyone thinks. It's a complex, very complicated issue. And I mean, we can't just expect leaders to figure out how to solve for, you know, sexism and, you know, systemic racism. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to deal with, too, in a larger scale to fix it. But there are ways that they can just start, you know, the conversation. And a big thing that I've been advocating or suggesting is taking time to check in more and look at your roots of leadership uh, really based in empathy and anytime we use the the golden rule 2.0 which is due unto others as they would have done unto themselves you know is more about active listening really finding out what is going on and direct managers have a large role to play where every friday they could just be saying hey you know how was this week What were the barriers to you reaching your goals? What was the biggest stress that you had this week? And what can we do as a team? And what can I do as your manager to make next week a little bit easier? I mean, these are just simple things that we can start with by having, you know, I call it the small data, like collecting the small data, finding out how people are feeling. And it doesn't need to mean that you're, you know, you're digging too deep for someone's comfort level. It's all about just saying, what can I do to improve your experience for next week? How can I help? And, you know, most people, I would say 95% of employees aren't going to ask for, you know, anything really major. It's usually, you know, understanding what their priorities are, what they should be working on. Uh, Another thing that I've been suggesting is take a moment to reset. Make sure that what you were working on at the start of the pandemic and what you, you thought your employees were doing, make sure that you ask and say, you know, are we still focused on the same goals? Are you creating false urgencies around priorities that I'm not aligned with? Like, let's just talk about where we're at and make sure that we're all, you know, working towards the same goals and there's not a lack of efficiencies. What we found this year is that people are working 30% more. Women on average are working 20 more hours per week, which is basically like a part-time job. Um, We've seen them have to leave the maternal labor force because of it. I mean, if we just checked in and made sure that we weren't You know, making people burn more calories to get to those same goals that could play a really big role. And so these are the the simple tactics that we can put into our day to day sort of weekly experience um, to help people feel like that they're not just exhausted um, one of the things that I should mention too is that in our in our research that we put out or data that we gathered this year, we found that a lot of people were exhausted, which we expected. But the level of cynicism was the part that really worried us. The fact that people don't feel like they can make changes, that this is how it's going to be forever, that you know that they're never going to get over this, like those that fatalist inability to have agency, kind of language in the data was the shocking part. And when you get to that point, and and so many people in, in the responses were at that point, that's when we're really in a crisis. And I think that's what employers need to know and leaders need to be aware of, you know, how people feel about their ability to make change and empowering people to feel like this isn't how it's going to feel like forever, that there's hope. And I think that's going to be most important critical skill for a leader if they're going to prevent burnout.
1: Jennifer, we can easily identify organisations that don't address burnout. I'm curious about anybody who does this well, who's actually addressing it in a proactive way and is trying their best to avoid this burnout epidemic.
0: Yes, you know, I had the the luxury of having great conversation working with lots of organizations, but a lot of the research that I did throughout the pandemic was mm-hmm. really I think informative because it was hopeful. I realized that a lot of organizations are trying very hard. They <laughs> tried and failed at some of those things at the beginning it was like lots of, you know, team building and cocktail hours and yoga in the morning until they realized that just wasn't working. His well-being can't lead to, you know, lead to workload, um, so there was a lot of pivoting, but there was a real desire. Um, for example, Hewlett Packard, the executive vice president of human resources, Alan May, was someone I spoke to. Really, a lot of over communication um, and uh, real transparency. Fifty minutes, sort of a monologue of what people, you know, is go- or what's going on inside the organization, and then an hour of Q and A you know, almost every day and just getting 60,000 employees to be able to ask questions of what they're feeling and their concerns are. And they were doing that consistently months into the pandemic. Um, Also making social collaboration just a place for people to proctor, you know, relationships with people instead of it being about how much time people are spending on, you know, social collaboration tools. It was just if you need to and you're a parent, for example, you had C-level executives and administrators and there was sort of this flattening of hierarchy in this parent group and everyone was sort of talking about tips that they could used to be able to better parent in the middle of a pandemic and and they talked about just this cohesion in this relationship that was being built because there was no sort of expectation to talk about work it was just feeling what people had to feel about, you know, whatever it was that they were worrying and concerned about and then and making sure that was available. And their, you know, employee experience scores were really high. 96% said that they continued to, you know, trust what their leaders were were doing in the pandemic. Um, also, you know, this one startup Okta that actually became quite <laughs> quite a a large company and had rapid growth inside of the pandemic, but they realized that people weren't taking paid time off And so they gave them these Fridays off. You know, they were trying to make sure that they could give them the time off. But what they found just in the the data that they were collecting, because they know when their employees are logging in, that people were just working on Saturdays instead. So they readjusted workload so that it was an actual four-day work week instead of just saying, we're going to give you Friday off, but then you work Saturdays. And I think, again, these kind of novel approaches to understanding that we're in a different world. Um, Cisco, for example, they did a lot to reinforce time with family and understand that that needed to be flexible. So a lot of flexibility in time and and adjusting schedules. And, you know, if you had an appointment or if your child was at home and needed care, that it wasn't all about working in these hours. It was just, you know, more goal focused. Um, and then they had a lot of mental health experts that were available to people on site. They ramped that up and made it on, like not just on site, but virtually. Um, and I think what's really important, the distinction that I see between just wellness apps where it's sort of self um, involved and you go and you do your breathing or you're calm, or, you know, those are great again, that well-being piece. But when it's a burnout prevention strategy, it's actual, you know, talk space or people that you have the ability to, to get help from that support you. And so really getting into that empathetic space and um, navigating it like this is no other time. uh, There are just a few of a lot of examples where I saw that effort being made.
1: It's terrific to be able to see it happening on the ground and the experiment to be going on in organisations in a time that we don't know really what is going to work. We We have to play with that. Jennifer, we've talked about COVID fatigue, but a lot of leaders I work with are finding that they have empathy fatigue, which is they're just being empathetic to everybody and they've got nothing left.
0: Absolutely, um, That is a huge problem uh, for leaders because, you know, and I just did a talk, exhausted leaders leading exhausted teams because they feel they have to be stoic. They feel like they have to have all the information and yet they're going through the same experiment, right? And I think maybe we struggle as leaders really to be able to, um, you know, not to put the proverbial mask on ourselves. We tend to really do a great job, you know, in telling everyone what to do. And sometimes we don't model those same behaviors. And so if we really want people you know, to, to behave in the way we want them to behave, we have to be doing that work ourselves. Um, And, you know, empathy fatigue and compassion fatigue is a big problem, especially in healthcare, as you can see, I mean, when we look at suicide rates for female physicians, they're 130 times above the national average. And, and that is a lot of it has to do with empathy fatigue, their male counterparts are still high, but it's 40, you know, you know, points above. And a lot of that is has to do with disassociation. So we're just seeing, you know, we're just seeing people having to go into self-preservation mode. And if they don't, it could be disastrous. It could be fatal. And so we have to understand that that's a big, you know, a big risk when we aren't able to to be able to say, OK, I I love the people that I'm serving. I care about them. They're in, an important part of my life. My team matters to me. And yet, there's no way that I can actually really protect them. I can't lead them if I am so sick that I'm not there to be able to to do that work. Um, it's a very difficult um, it's a very difficult thing to identify. Especially, females are are more likely to deal with this in general. They're more likely to be burned out. Um, we see more burnout in females, and we see more empathy and compassion fatigue for for females. And so, it's something again that we need to reach out as individuals too, and as peers, we need to be asking people when they say they're fine, you know, are you really fine? And And checking in more. And as leaders, we don't need to be mental health experts. We just need to know how to get people to the professionals that can help them. We tend to take on the role to think that if someone tells us that they're dealing with something that our job is to solve that. And that isn't our job. Our job is to be able to say, here is where in our EAP there's support systems. Here are local supports. You know, as a manager, get to know what your local supports are and have that at the ready. Have phone numbers at the ready. Um, Know where in HR you can send people if they are really dealing with uh, mental health crises. So the more that we can feel like that's not our job necessarily to take it on, but that we can be really great drivers to, to, of people to where they need to go, that relinquishes some of that responsibility.
1: How do you measure burnout? Is it a self-measure Do organizations? Do a happiness app, like the ones you get on your service as you used to move through customs or in a bathroom? Well, how do we measure this idea of I'm about to burn out or I'm not?
0: Well, you know, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Maslock and Dr. Leiter. They are the gold standard for measuring burnout and uh, areas of work-life surveys, what Dr. Michael later also developed. And they, I would say, have been in the, the burnout research space for 40 years. They've looked at thousands, tens of thousands of data points. And that MBI, the Maslow Burnout Inventory, is really the like I said, the academic or gold standard for measuring burnout. And so organizations do use that. Mm. And, you know, a sort of a a dialed down version, which I, you know, say that even we just can do as a self-assessment is what they use is frequency scale. So they look at how frequently we feel certain feelings. And the exhaustion piece is, you know, how often are you feeling like At the end of the day, you're just completely wiped out from your work? How many times per week do you feel like you can't motivate to get up in the morning to start your job? You know, how frequently per week are you sort of dreading the next day? You know, that kind of um, really tells us how exhausted we are. And then the cynicism piece is really about how we can affect change. You know, how frequently do you feel like you, you know, your um, you know, sort of outlook is that this isn't going to change or how unchanged you feel about the work. and, And that frequency when we sort of self-analyze how often we're feeling like that can give us a pretty good understanding. Again, this isn't at the level that an organization would use to really measure burnout across their organization. The MBI is better for that. But if we can kind of use that as a tool to define, okay, so this week, You know, I was tired, but I didn't feel like it was unchanged. I know that in the next or or that it's still going to be okay in the next week. That's sort of like, okay, I get it. But as those things start to increase, we need to become much more aware. Um, And so that's a great way even for leaders to talk to their teams. You know, how often are you feeling exhaustion? You know, what is it that is adding to this exhaustion or creating it? Um, This year, we also had the experience of brain fog, and it's a result of chronic stress because of being in fight or flight consistently, and that's making us feel demotivated. It's making us feel like small tasks are like Herculean. They're so exhausting to do small tasks. We don't have clarity. So that chronic stress is also impacting just our exhaustion levels, and managers tend to see that as um, performance problems and it's not a performance pl- problem and managers really need to dig deeper to say, okay, all of these things that I assume, you know, maybe your lateness or your tiredness or you're making mistakes or you're not as engaged, or you're not as focused, it must mean that you're you're not doing a good job. But usually that actually is at the root of chronic stress. And so that's another thing that we need to be made very well aware of as leaders, that we need to dig deeper and ask those questions.
1: You have a concept of job crafting as a sort of a solution here as part of your antidote to some of the burnout you've experienced. Can you help me understand what you describe as job crafting?
0: Well, what we found in the research and what we've seen it across, so many different, you know, evidence that points to the fact that passion and purpose and meaning in our work is a prophylaxis often for, for burnout and for stress. Yes. Um, for people that really love what they do, they still work really hard and they can be susceptible to burnout. I mean, I can raise my hand to that. I love what I do. And yet uh, there's times where I've been prone to it. Um, but having purpose and having that mindset that what you're doing every day is meaningful can be really good buffer for stress. And uh, job crafting was created by a Yale professor and a Wharton professor, and they landed upon this, group of employees that like that that were so distinctly different they had to figure out what it was and they were cleaners in a hospital most of the people on this ward were in a vegetative state and there was one group when they asked what they did they sort of described tactically almost like what a job requisition would look like in their description of their job and then the other group called themselves patient ambassadors and what was so interesting about the work though the actual tactics were exactly the same. The the work that they did, you know, moving uh, the paintings or changing the paintings, changing the bedding, you know, those kind of things, cleaning the floors, they were the same. But the way that the patient ambassadors described them was cleaning the floors because I know that my patients really can smell the clean cleanliness or changing their flowers because I want them to feel that when they wake up out of this state that they were loved and cared for, making sure they're comfy and they're, you know, in their um, bedding. I mean, these are things that, that everyone is doing. Yeah. The other group is cleaning their bedding and washing the floors and doing all those same things, but it's their mindset of the people that really felt that what they did had had meaning and purpose, that it made a bigger uh, impact on the overall goal of those patients that made them more engaged, less absenteeism, less sick days, They, their life satisfaction and their job satisfaction were higher. I mean, all of these benefits came out of just this mindset shift. And so what I suggest to, to even just to be journaling and thinking about ourselves is, What are the things that that I put off? What are the barriers that, that I have in my day? What are the things I procrastinate most on and why? What are the barriers? How do I overcome that? And then what are the things that give me the most joy and meaning? What is it about the work that I do that provides purpose or has a positive impact on others? And then be able to take those things that we have as barriers and change the way that we think about them and understand how they, you know, how they layer up into the overall mission of our work or the mission of the company or whatever the goals are and values are that we have attached to our work. And when we do that, it is so life-changing, it's, it really is changing uh, the way that we perceive some of those other things that we think are useless or meaningless or they're just tactical, um, they have no role, but we need to start thinking differently about that and it changes our perception. So the job crafting is how do we make our job have more meaning by taking some of those kind of innocuous tasks and making them uh, con- uh, acknowledge that they contribute to our overall goals.
1: So would you be recommending people check in with themselves and listen to their personal narrative about their work as a precursor for awareness so they can start to choose how they shift that narrative?
0: Absolutely. I think that is a journaling exercise that I suggest that leaders do with their teams at least, you know, once a quarter and have that conversation. But ourselves, we need to be thinking when we feel sort of demotivated Um, how we can increase our motivation. And often, you know, we look at this as it's too time-consuming or, you know, maybe it's just just some jobs aren't supposed to make us happy or whatever the rationale is. But I keep saying, you know, why do we do things that harm us versus help us? You know, if this is going to help us to have a better experience Mm. of work, which is where we spend, you know, 50% of our waking hours, then isn't that a justifiable reason? I, I just think, if we're in a harmonious relationship with our work and with our life, uh, that it only increases all of these other benefits. You know, it decreases stress. It improves heart health. It increases our lifespan. Our relationships are better. We're more compassionate. We're less lonely. I mean, all of these things sort of play into why we should do it and and just enjoy, you know, our work a little bit more.
1: Are there any last tips for us as we close off this wonderful and inspiring chat. Um, Are there any top tips for avoiding burnout?
0: You know, it really is about, I think this year is a lot of self-compassion and a lot of grace. I keep saying there is no right way to feel right now. And we have no frame of reference. We have a lack of efficacy. What we felt mastery in, in March, you know, 01, <laughs> 2020, by March 30th, you know, 2020, we were totally flipped upside down. And so the idea that we're supposed to have it all figured out and we're supposed to be working, you know, at the same levels or higher and never have a moment where we, you know, falter or we trip or we fail, you know, that is unsustainable. And if there are days where we're feeling demotivated, be okay with that give yourself that grace and compassion and give others that same grace and compassion you know when they are on mute and you're annoyed because they've done it 17 times or you know you're frustrated because it's the end of the day and you've been on zoom all day and you know there's you're just exhausted you know you have every right to feel that way but we're all in in the same sort of experience together, we're all weathering it together. And the more compassion and grace we can give each other right now, the more empathy we can give each other right now, the more likely that we'll get through this in a way that that keeps us human. And uh, in the recovery period, that humanity is what is going to really pull us through.
1: Jennifer, thank you so much. The Burnout Epidemic, an amazing book, great read, lots of top tips for people, both individuals and organisations. So, I just can't thank you enough for this great conversation and I can't wait to dive further into the burnout epidemic.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a really wonderful and in-depth conversation. Thank you.
1: Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Mataloff. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener